Well, good morning again, friends. Thanks so much for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the, the church into uh, this sanctuary. Thanks to uh, those of you who are gathered for Crosspoint at home as well. Thanks for uh, inviting us into your living room or wherever you're tuning in uh, from. If you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, we've never had the opportunity to be introduced. My name is Jamie. It's my joy to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. Uh, it's a joy to open up God's word with you all. Uh, it's a joy as well to begin uh, this Advent season together and to beginning a new Advent series uh, that's called Longing for Emmanuel. And so I'm gonna explain more of that here in just a few minutes about kind of what we're gonna be focusing on over the next few weeks leading up to Christmas Eve and, and to Christmas Day. Uh, but we wanna begin by opening up God's word to us this morning. So I wanna invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter nine. Uh, there are Bibles in the pews here, so you can use one of those. If you didn't bring your own, um, you can also scan the QR code that's in the pew in front of you or go to thisiscp.church and click that little next steps icon and it'll bring up a, a menu that says uh, sermon notes. Um, and there you can get the text and anything that's up on the slides this morning, you'll be able to follow along there but I want you to have God's word in front of you. Uh, as always, you do not need my take on Christmas or my thoughts, any of the, those things. Like we need to hear from, from God and his word. And it is so incredibly timeless that it, it continues to speak into our moments, our lives in this particular time and space in which we inhabit. And so Isaiah 9 verses 1 to 7, if you're able, would you please stand as I read God's word this morning? Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So friends, as we get into this, uh, we're gonna get into this text in just a, a moment, but I wanna say a few words about this particular season that we enter into here as Advent, um, and then this particular series and kind of our focus and how it's gonna help us on this journey, all right? Because um, Advent is way more than simply like the countdown to Christmas. We can be excited about Christmas Day, all right? Yes and amen to all of that, but it is a particular season in the church calendar that's loaded with significance and it will serve us well to pay attention to that. And if we were to go to the opening chapter of the book of Matthew, as Matthew is laying out the account of Jesus's first, the first advent, Jesus, the God man coming to dwell with us, it says this in Matthew 1 verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. 
And then we get this little parenthetical note here that let us know what that means. It means God with us. That withness of God is what we need. Like we are a people that are created to be with one another, but more than that, as significant as that is, we also are created to be with our God. Like we want to know that he is with us, that he is for us. The reality is there's things that we've all carried in here this morning. And we wonder like, can God still be with me? Can God's people be with me? Like, you don't know the things that I've done, the things that I struggle with. And to know there is a God who is with us, a God who enters in. There's something just inherent in the human condition where we want that withness, right? You think of maybe as a, as a young child, maybe you can remember to the, the days of, you know, maybe you were like, oh, I'm scared of the dark or I need somebody to kind of like lay in the room while I go to, to sleep or you're a parent that does that for a child, right? There's that sense of like, I just want somebody to be with me. I still have vivid kind of visceral memories of like being dropped off at, at, at school, all right? Um, and my dad was a, a teacher at the school that I attended in Michigan. Um, and I remember we would walk in this way and he would go to the left down his hallway towards where the fifth grade classroom. And then I had to walk down this long corridor as like a kindergartner, right? And it was dark and ominous and terror on every side, right? Um, just like, can I make it all the way down to the end? Like there's this sense of like, oh, will somebody go with me? Like we want that withness. We want witness when we go to the cafeteria and we want people to sit with us. And that never goes away. That longing, that sense of like, will somebody be with me? And the reality is, as much as we're created for other people to be with us and we have the great gift of this withness, like this togetherness, we fail one another. We let one another down. We don't always come through, but God, the God of the universe describes himself as this Emmanuel, God with us, that he doesn't forsake us, that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And so friends, this season then is an opportunity to dwell on that as we're talking about this longing for Emmanuel. It's this, this longing for God with us. And we're gonna look at that in some helpful ways. Tish Harrison Warren, I'm gonna quote her in just a moment, but her book called Advent, The Season of Hope lays out kind of this beautiful um, description of the season of Advent, but also talks about the three Advents. And so we get the first one, right? It's like, oh, the Advent, like the first coming of Jesus, the incarnation. But there's also in many ways, a second Advent in that God is here with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this week we're looking at the first Advent. Next week, we'll look at the second Advent, like that God gives us his spirit. So it's, a, it's an Advent in the past, what we'll look at today. There's an Advent in the present, but there's also an Advent in the future. Like there's a final Advent where Jesus comes back and he splits the sky, right? And he comes to eradicate all war and terror and and injustice, he wipes away every tear, he brings healing to the nations and to us individually. Like that's also like loaded in here in this Advent season. And so we'll be looking at three Advents over these next three weeks, but also with that friends, there's these three longings. And each one of these Advents speaks to particular longings. And so today we'll look at this longing, this yearning that we have for redemption. Next week, this longing and this yearning that we have for sanctification, uh, uh, just a kind of a fancy way of saying, growing in holiness, growing in Christ-likeness, becoming more who God intended us to be. And then our third week leading up to Christmas Eve, we'll also be looking at this idea of glorification. What does God promise those who are in Christ, what he's ultimately going to do. And so we'll be looking at really these three advents, these three yearnings, these three desires, these three longings. 
Tish Harrison Warren says in her book then too, she comments on this particular season that we think we're about a month away from like New Year's resolutions, right? And all the all that that brings and bowl games and all those sorts of things, right? Um, but it would be, according to the church calendar, the most appropriate thing today would be not just like, hey, welcome to the start of Advent, but it's the start of the, in the Christian calendar historically, it's like the launching of the new year. And so many ways you could turn to people this morning and say, happy new year. And, and you would be right in many ways about that. And so she comments on this and she says, we begin our Christian year in waiting. We do not begin with our own frenetic effort or energy. Do you feel that already, right? Like, I mean, we're in the holiday season already and it can be very present. We do not begin with the merriment of Christmas or the triumph of Easter. We do not begin with the work of the church or the mandate of the great commission. Instead, we begin in a place of yearning and we wait for our King to come. We wait for Emmanuel. We wait for God with us. And this season is an invitation for you and I to pay attention to the deep longings, the desires that we have. Now, sure, some of our desires are, are misplaced and misguided and this is not a message to just follow your heart, right? We're not in a Disney film here, all right? But what we have is this real beautiful God-given desires that he places in the human heart, that God has set eternity in our hearts, the book of Ecclesiastes would tell us. And we have to pay attention to that. What are those places where we're longing for like redemption, the places where we feel stuck? What are the places of darkness that we need the light of the gospel to shine more brightly? I wanna encourage you to be thinking through this. Are you paying attention to your longings? Are you paying attention to your desires? Those are important things that the Lord has given to you and given to me. My hope is in this Advent season that we would pay attention to those things and then we would come to see more clearly how God meets us in those places and how God ultimately is liberating us from the places where we are stuck, the places where we're enslaved, that we might experience a greater joy and freedom in the gospel. And so this morning, we're gonna look at this theme of redemption as part of this longing for Emmanuel, as we look at the first advent, this promise of the coming of Jesus, we look at Isaiah chapter nine, I want us to look first at there's a redemption that is promised. We'll look at then as we get into verses two through five, we're gonna look at a redemption, just how it's described. There's some fascinating details in this text written generations before the coming of Jesus. And then we'll look at how God accomplishes, how God achieves redemption for us. But first we gotta start with very simply, there's redemption that is promised. There's like, there's liberation that's promised. There's freedom that's promised. The places where we're stuck in patterns of, of sin, like there's a promise that God makes in verse one. So look back with me, Isaiah nine, verse one. It says this, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And so if we look at that text for just a moment, at one level where it says there'll be no gloom, that is implying the fact that there is actual present gloom, that there's darkness, that there's hard things. One of the things we love about the Bible is how honest it is about the pain, the anguish, the gloom that is present. So you might be feeling all the holiday feelings and the cheer, but I also think if you pay attention and you settle in for a moment, I think you would also recognize, and I would have to recognize like, oh, but man, there's gonna be a heaviness. 
There can be a gloom that can settle in. Like, where's that come from? And up until this point, we don't have time to do a whole exposition of the book of Isaiah up through chapter nine. But the prophet Isaiah, in short, is in summary, is, is laying out these words that God has him speak. Isaiah had this encounter with the living God in Isaiah six. You can go read about his commissioning. He gets this vision into the throne room of God and he literally, he, he just becomes completely undone. He's like, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. He's like, I can't be in the presence of God. He's encountering this holiness and he doesn't know what to do. And then God cleanses him. And then God says, hey, I need somebody to go and speak a message. And Isaiah with like all this enthusiasm is like, me, 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 go, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll sign up. And God's like, okay. But just know this, as you go out and you faithfully proclaim my word and you say some of the hard things, the people will be hearing, but they won't hear. They're gonna hear your words, but they're not going to listen. And it's not just that they're rejecting you, Isaiah, they're actually rejecting me. And I'm gonna need you to say some hard things to the people to describe the gloom and the anguish that awaits them because I'm going to send armies to come and to conquer my people and they will be brought into exile. There's horrific things that are kind of on the horizon for my people if they, if they don't listen to me, if they don't heed my warning. And so when Isaiah speaks these words in chapter nine, it's on the heels of a lot of darkness and a lot of gloom, but then there's this promise. It says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So it's a recognition of anguish and pain, but saying that's not ultimately where you're gonna end up. And then it says in the former time, he brought into contempt. Like there's this contrast. Okay, so Zebulun and Naphtali, apparently those were places of, of contempt. There was something hard. There's some anguish in particular that these regions dealt with. But he says in the latter time, he's made glorious. Like what is this contrast? The way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now we can just kind of blow right past that stuff, right? Those details that are in the text. Those are just names of places that I have no idea where they are and they're hard to pronounce. What does he mean by Zebulun? What does he mean by Naphtali? Why, why are these details in here? Well, we have to remember, there's no detail in the scriptures that's meant to be ignored or overlooked. And when we get geographic references, this would have meant something to the original audience. It may not mean something initially to you and me, but if we see what it meant to the original audience, it's like, oh, this promise is even better than I thought. Because the land of Naphtali and the land of Zebulun, here's what they would have known. Here's what their reality would have been. Anytime the people of God were invaded by the enemies of God, think peoples like the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and some of the horrific, I mean, the Assyrians like invented the most cruel ways of taking people captive. It's just horrific things you just like, you don't even want to speak about. And these were people that came into the land of Israel. And the way that they would first enter into the land, Zebulun and Naphtali are in the Northern region. And so as people traveled, what was this prime trade route? It was a land that other people wanted to occupy. And it was a spot in Naphtali and Zebulun where the enemies of God would first show up. So the first line of defense, the first people that are gonna be ransacked, the first people that are gonna lose their, their spouse, their, their kids, have their homes burned to the ground, be taken captive are these lands. No wonder there's anguish and pain and darkness. These people knew nothing, but we've just rebuilt and then they're getting ready for another horrific thing to happen. 
Talk about just the, the trauma, the, the legit like PTSD that they must have had that anytime there were rumors of, of war, there's rumors of another like nation that's coming to prominence and being on the move, they would have had this moment like, oh no, when they show up, they're coming here first. That's what would always happen. But what God is communicating is saying, okay, that was the story, but I want you to know I'm gonna showcase for you. And this is so key in the season of Advent to realize God works in such unexpected ways. What's happening here is he's telling us, no, there's gonna be a deliverer. There's going to be a savior. There's going to be a Messiah that's going to show up. And this Messiah, this savior, this promised leader, this one who's gonna bring liberation. So it can be referred to not as a land of contempt, but of glory. It's gonna show up to these people. What's being communicated is there's an unexpected place that this deliverer is gonna come from. He's gonna come to an unexpected people. Like the people of Zebulun and the people of Naphtali, all they expected, and understandably so, were just like, ugh, like what's next? And maybe you're in that spot this morning, right? There's just been hard thing after hard thing after hard thing and your heart wants to open up to the possibility of joy. Your heart wants to open up to the possibility of, of redemption. Your heart want, is longing for that, but there's a part of you that's just like, I just gotta shield it. I've gotta cover it up. Like, I don't know if I can open myself up to that pain again. And we have a word here that God says, listen, I recognize the anguish. I recognize the pain, but I'm moving in this particular way. And I'm gonna come to, it's an unexpected place. Like nobody thought this is where good would happen. And nobody thought that when this person would show up, why wouldn't he choose Jerusalem to show up? These are the out of the way places. These are the places that are, that are devastated, but God doesn't work in the ways that we think of. It's an unexpected place to an unexpected people. In fact, if we were to jump again to the book of Matthew and we read about Jesus's commissioning, like he's just dealt with the devil out in the wilderness for 40 days after his baptism, and he's getting ready to launch his public ministry. Let me read to you. I mean, this is such beautiful fulfillment of what was taking place here in Isaiah chapter nine, speaking of the one who is to come. It says this in Matthew 4, 12 to 14. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, so when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So he's moving north, but it's not just that he's moving north. It says this, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. This is no accident, friends. These details matter so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. That Jesus shows up and then he literally quotes what we just read in Isaiah chapter nine. He literally says, the people walked in darkness have seen a great light. Like Jesus's first sermon, when he bursts on the scene, he preaches Isaiah nine. I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. It was a better sermon than the one you're gonna get today, right? Like Jesus opens it up and just lays this out and says, this has been fulfilled like in your hearing. And he does something beautiful that the God man would show up in the places that had been previously devastated. The thing where it was like, ah, nothing good happens there. Jesus is like, I'm gonna make it glorious. I'm gonna do something. Friends, that's how our God works. And Advent is an invitation to open our hearts up again to those, those good godly longings and desires for redemption, for healing, for reconciliation, for all of those things. And no, he loves to showcase his strength. He moves into the unexpected places. He moves toward the unexpected people. That's who our God is. 
And from there, then redemption, this liberation is described. Look with me at verses two through five. And as we look back at these verses, there's a number of different ways we could approach this, but I think kind of a helpful framework looking kind of verse by verse. We'll look at two, three, and then four and five together. I think what we see here is confrontation is the way that we're gonna really understand redemption. We have to see the confrontation that's kind of embedded in it. Then we'll see the exaltation and we'll see the liberation that God speaks of. But first the confrontation, all right? It tells us verse two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light and those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. The reason it's a confrontation here, I mean, there's great things happening, right? The light has shown, that's in the passive voice, meaning like they didn't generate the light. You and I do not generate light, right? Jesus is the light of the world. We simply reflect his light, all right? It's derivative for us. Like we, we do not create this, but it says light has shown, like God is shining his light into the darkest places. There's nothing that he's like afraid of. He's not afraid of like, oh, I can't go there. I can't venture there. No, he like enters in God with us into the darkest places. But the confrontation comes in this, that God is telling us they walked in darkness. Do not deny the darkness that is present in your life and my life still, right? He's longing for us to actually pay attention and say, okay, Will you be honest with your story that there are places that the light of the gospel has not shown fully and brightly enough, that there's things that God wants to free you of, to free me of, but we need to be honest and allow it to confront us. Like if we're gonna see God work in and through us, collectively as a church, but also individually, we've got to allow it to do its confronting work. In his book, Hidden Christmas, uh, Tim Keller helps us wrestle with this idea of like, will you admit your need for light? Apart from the grace of God, we're stuck in darkness. And so he gives this bit of illustration. Um, he says, imagine it's Christmas morning and you're unwrapping gifts from some friends. And so with some zeal, some enthusiasm, right? Like you tear into the first present, but here's how he describes it. He says, some gifts by their very nature make you swallow your pride. So imagine opening a present on Christmas morning from a friend and it's a dieting book. <laughs> you're like, hmm, thanks so much, right? So then you're like, well, I put that one aside. Maybe I'll move on to this other present. You take off another ribbon and wrapper and you find it as another book from another friend called Overcoming Selfishness. If you say to them, thank you so much, you are in a sense admitting, for indeed, I am fat and obnoxious. In other words, some gifts are hard to receive because to do so is to admit you have flaws and weaknesses and you need help, right? So like I'm leaving Christmas Eve and you hand me something and it's island wrap and it's like 10 steps of preaching better sermons. I'm like, thanks, right? Like it's one of those moments. You're like, and yet, listen, there can be things, we, we gotta understand this, right? Like a, a friend may not give the, the, the right gift. They might lack all sorts of social tact and emotional intelligence and all of that. Like, why did you give me that? This is really awkward. But know this, like God in love is actually confronting us, asking us to pay attention to the darkness. Maybe a way to think about this question during Advent is like, what kind of book do you need? Not to send you down a path of condemnation and shame. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation but maybe what do you need to examine? What do I need to examine that, that kind of speaks to like, oh, 
yeah, that's, that's the place. I, I haven't relinquished that. I haven't surrendered that. I, I like the idea of God with me and I like the idea of God as my savior, but I'm not sure I want him as Lord of everything because it would mean I have to give this up. And I'd have to repent and move in this direction. I'd have to actually look myself in the mirror and be okay pointing out, yeah, that, that's not right. That doesn't honor God. That doesn't honor the people that he's put in my life. Like there's a confrontation kind of embedded in this. But friends, if we will pay attention to that, it leads, it leads, and this is a tough thing to believe, but it does lead to joy. Verse three, you have multiplied the nation. This is the exaltation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. It's this idea of like, there's this increase of influence. There's this increase of joy. There's this rejoicing. It's like this unbridled, just sort of like, whoa, this is amazing, right? Like most of us are not living in an agrarian culture and we think about the harvest, but to bring in the harvest, the hall for that year, it's like there'd be singing and dancing and feasting. It's like, it's here, right? They are glad when they divide the spoil. It's, it's imagery of like, a victorious army and there's the spoils of war and they're just dividing it up. Oh, here, you get this and you get this. And all of it is being provided by God. That's the unexpected thing again. It's not stuff that we earn, right? The image there is just this, this joy. So I don't know what that what comes to mind, but it's like this sort of image, right? Here's an image from like a graduation ceremony. It's just like, man, it's just like, the graduates are rejoicing and maybe the parents are rejoicing more. I mean, who knows, right? But there, there's this, this sense in here of just like, whoa, like that's what this is speaking to. But we can't have that without allowing this word, this season to confront us, but it does lead to exaltation. And then it also leads to liberation. Like this is ultimately what we celebrate. So verse four says this, for the yoke of his burden and yoke speaks of, this is like two oxen getting ready to plow a field, right? And they're, they have this yoke. They have this, literally this like wooden beam placed upon their, their shoulders, their backs. They would walk together, but it is a burden. It's heavy. And it's only to enter like this, this labor, this intensity for the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. This is speaking of, and it's describing the human condition when we are stuck in sin, when we are enslaved, and it's speaking and it's referencing something historically that the people of Israel would have known where they also had an oppressor. It wasn't just that they were stuck in their sin, but they also were like, had an enemy that was attacking them. And so it says, you have broken. So all of this gets shattered though. It's saying like, how, is, how are we gonna break free? How's the burden gonna be lifted? And it says, you have broken as on the day of Midian. It speaks, there's this reference. And Isaiah knows that the original audience, they would have gotten this. Like this is a, again, this is like a hyperlink. It's like, click on this, click on the word Midian. It takes you back to a story. Well, we might miss that reference, but friends, if we understand what this is, the shorthand way of saying, it's a reference to Gideon. And he did more than put Bibles in hotels, right? Like literally like this word here, Midian is a reference to the people of God who are being getting ready to be attacked. They're dealing with this enemy of Midian. And so God raises up this man named Gideon. This comes from the book of Judges. And in this story, in this account, an army gets raised up. Gideon calls for the people to go to battle against their enemy. And 32,000 men, it tells us, sign up, okay? So here's how the story starts, 32,000. Now it's still less than their enemy. It's still a smaller number, but there's 32,000. 
and God has this really interesting word because there's this movement from 32,000 ultimately down to 300. And in verse two of chapter seven, it says this, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Why? He says, lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. God is not interested in giving his glory away to another. He knows that's actually where we won't, we won't find joy if we rejoice thinking our hand did it. And so he has Gideon say to the 32,000, hey, if anyone has, if they're fearful of anything, if they got something to attend to, they got some plans on that weekend, like just raise your hand and you can go in 10,000 leave. So now we're down to 22,000. And then through a series of other events, God whittles it down and says, that's still too many. And he gets it down to 300. Now here's where we pick up the story, right? That's what this is speaking to. Talking about unexpected ways that God works. God's like, I'm gonna show up and I'm gonna be with my people, but it's not in the ways you expect. And I'm gonna do it in a way that you can't rob me of glory. I'm gonna showcase my strength through weakness. And so in Judges 7, 16 to 18, it says this, and he divided the 300 men from 32,000 down to 300, divided the men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. Now, just think about this. Are these any references to like a sword, to a shield, things you typically go into battle with? 17, and he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do, says Gideon. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Okay, great. You got your little chant. You're gonna yell out. Okay, you got that. But wouldn't somebody maybe have spoken up and been like, can I have a sword, right? Can I have a shield? Can I have something that an army might typically use? You realize what's happening here, right? God has whittled it down to 300. And then literally he sent a marching band into the other army, right? To do battle, nothing against marching bands, right? But he's like, in one hand, you got the trumpet and the other hand, you've got this torch and it's gonna be covered up with this empty jar for a bit. Like how in the world is this gonna work out? And yet, as we read in verse 20 to 22, then the three companies, they blew the trumpets and they broke the jars and they held in their left hands, the torches, and the right hand, the trumpets to blow. And they cried, which is, this is fascinating, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, even though they had no sword. Every man stood in the place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. Do you see what's happening? Their very enemies are turning on one another. They're using their own swords against themselves. And they cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Meholah by Tabath. God does it. God is with his people. And Isaiah is saying, friends, don't lose sight of the redemption. I know there's hard things that are coming, but God has promised that he's gonna lead you from agony and anguish to glory. He has promised that he's going to bring a deliverer out of a place no one would have expected. He's asking you to surrender in a way, like be confronted by the truth that on your own, you're in darkness. But if you want this joy, just know it's the Lord who fights through his means. No, none of us, if it was me, if I had been Gideon, it's like, how can I 
increase from 32,000, at least maybe to 40. Can we do that? Can we get some of the best battle of the year? Can we do this? No part of me would have thought, let's whittle it down to 300 and then send them in with a musical instrument and a torch. But our God's like, that's all I need. And this is astounding. But let's look at verse six to seven because it gets even more astounding. As he speaks with more specificity about redemption achieved. All right, I skipped verse five. I didn't mean to do that. Hold on. Um, For every boot, it's basically saying, listen, even like the blood soaked shirts of the enemy, like they're gonna be used as fuel for the fire. Like God is just saying like, I've got this, I've accomplished this. But the most unexpected thing is how this redemption ultimately is achieved as we look at verses six to seven. And so verse six says this, for to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given. If we just stop right there for just a moment, God is just saying like, listen, a child, a child is gonna do this. And as we know how the story progresses, I mean, even if we went back and we read like Isaiah, uh, and I read it out of Matthew one, which is a reference to the book of Isaiah and chapter seven speaks of the one that would come, that would be called Emmanuel, that that would come from this teenage virgin girl named Mary. So a child is gonna do this? a child born to a teen mom with all sorts of drama and rumors flying about her and and the child's father and all of these things. A child that would live in the land of Nazareth where the phrase of the day was nothing good comes from Nazareth. Like that is where this is gonna happen. It's completely unexpected, but it's God's way of showcasing again. He doesn't work the way that we would set out to work. And this child would grow up and ultimately purchase our salvation through his shed blood on the cross. Kings don't go on a cross, but in God's kingdom, in God's upside down way of things, that's exactly what would happen. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. He will carry everything. Friends, there are burdens you are carrying right now that God has never asked you to carry And there's a call to surrender that to the Lord. It'll be upon his shoulder and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God. Jesus is not just a good teacher, a good man, somebody that's impressive. Like it's telling us like, no, he's been called mighty God, everlasting father, not to be confused. There's God, the father, God, the somebody, but he has these fatherly characteristics in his compassion and his kindness and prince of peace. I love the way Ray Ortland in his commentary on Isaiah says it then in light of these truths about who Jesus is, who this child is, says, look at Jesus as the wonderful counselor. He has the best ideas and strategies. So let's follow him as the mighty God. He defeats his enemies easily. So let's hide behind him as the everlasting father. He loves us endlessly. So let's enjoy him as the Prince of peace. He reconciles us while we are still his enemies. So let's welcome his dominion. It's not because we went out and said, you know what, we've gotten rid of some of the darkness and now we're we're worthy of love and all this. No, no, no. Like while we were yet his enemies, he died for us the first incarnation, Jesus is accomplishing redemption. He's liberating his people. So we can be part of this story that ultimately there is hope. And we long certainly for the the final advent, 
But in this in-between time, know that he has purchased our salvation, that he has redeemed us, that he has ransomed us. The places where we were stuck, he is doing the work. This is why Paul would write, telling the, the incarnation, the first Advent story again, in Galatians four, verses four to five. But when the fullness of time had come, at just the right time, the time ordained by God himself, that Isaiah nine looked ahead to, God sent forth the son born of woman, born under the law to do what? To redeem, to bring redemption to those who were under the law. Meaning the law would crush us. We can't live a sinless life. We can't honor God with our mind and our thoughts and our, our actions, none of it. We're trapped in darkness crushed under the law. He says, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption. We might receive adoption as sons, that we would have all the benefits and privileges that belong to a son, the inheritance that's there. And now God, when he looks at you, if you're in Christ, he doesn't see the darkness. He sees Jesus, the light of the world. And you and I now have all the benefits, like we are adopted, we're part of his family. And so friends, in this Advent season, and as we both today, as we continue in worship, but throughout this season, be asking yourself like, will you rest in this redemption that he has achieved? This redemption that's only possible because God entered in, God with us, God who moved into the neighborhood, God who took on flesh and blood, God, man, Jesus, who lived a sinless life, who died a death that you deserve and I deserve who rose three days later, proving that he had conquered Satan, sin and death. Like this is the story we're caught up in. And so will you rest in that? And verse seven concludes this way of the increase. Just rest in this, God has it. He's got it. This is the story he's writing of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Nothing can thwart his plan. Nothing can stop his kingdom. It's only going to increase. There's only gonna be multiplication and dominion as Genesis spoke of in the series we just finished, right? And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, like this line that he promised, this is where Jesus would come from to establish it and uphold it with justice, with mishpat, the Hebrew word and righteousness, tzedakah, literally this idea of like bringing a right ordering to everything bringing justice, seeking out those who are marginalized that are stuck in place. And God is saying, I'm here to liberate you from this time forth and forevermore. And then to just to bookend it, it started with a promise and it ends with a promise for the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The imagery there is somebody who has worked themselves up into a frenzy. It literally means like their face is turning red. They've got so much passion and they're like, they're rallying the troops. They're sending the team out, right? They're just like, let's go. And God is saying, the zeal of the Lord will do this. I don't need you. I don't literally need anybody, right? I've invited you guys to play and to participate is what he's saying, but the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. It's as good as done. And we live now on the other side of the first advent. And so may you and I rest in that. May we know the reality that God is with us and whatever darkness you're facing, may we open ourselves up this Advent season to say, Lord, in your kindness, will you bring the light into the places of darkness? Maybe even the place I've been reluctant to go and let's watch what God is going to do. And so friends, as we get ready to respond through communion, through singing prayer, just ask you to consider, right? Where do you need to repent? just to move in a new direction, to remember God's grace that he's with us. And then we're gonna to rejoice together. So let me pray and then I'll give some instruction about how we're gonna continue in our service, but let's pray. God, thank you for this word. 
Thank you for this text. Thank you for this Advent season. Thank you for allowing us the space to reflect on the first Advent. My God, we thank you that we're part of a story that there's this, and this reality that you're, you're, you're with us now. Um, there's a present day reality to all of this. And there is a future hope that is guaranteed. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. That Jesus, we believe and we trust that one day you're coming back victorious, riding on that white horse. And though you are a warrior king, you're also one that will stoop low and you will wipe away our tears and you will be gentle with us. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for the story that you've made possible. And so God, as we continue in worship, we pray God that you would get the glory that only you deserve. And I pray for all of us that we would experience just a deep and abiding joy. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.